This is God's word. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay. And he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread. And after that, you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry, and tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jabos, which is Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jabus, the, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come, and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or Ramah. So they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening, the man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going? And where do you come from? And the old man said, peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed. And they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night 
until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where his master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm Howard Brown, the pastor here at Christ Central Church. And um, I want to thank Robert Knuth, our intern, pastor intern for preaching last week. Thank you, Robert, and uh, stepping in. Um, we have a painting today. That is, as Amari mentioned, that is by Hillary Cyber. Um, I remember I asked her for something that she thought would fit, and I, she's done a couple of things, and so that is hers today. Praise God for that. Uh, we did get a chance to go to LDR, which is Learning sorry, Leadership Development Resource, and it started that way, that name, because it was a way of getting African Americans primarily and other minority leaders and those who work and those in that environment in um, Presbyterian and Reformed circles um, to give them guidance, to give them encouragement, to do some training among um, that group who, for the most part, are going back to predominantly white um, denominations and churches, and so um, it's grown. And so now it's hundreds of people coming for that kind of mentoring and guidance. And I must say, um, your First Lady Kelly, she was fabulous. Um, yeah, she, she did some speaking this year. I was just carrying her stuff. Um, it was funny. We'd be around, is, is your wife here? Um, yeah, great. Over there. And I'd be sitting there in the corner. You know my face sometimes at the church. Come on, Kelly. Um, on, but everybody kept uh, wanting to talk to her. Um, the Hills went with us. Also, um, Danielle um, Irwin and Brittany Gardner over here uh, went with us, and um, it was, and the McLean family, McLean's, where y'all at? McLean's went as well um, with a couple of their kids, and it was an, it was an interesting weekend, um, and I will have to tell you that the weekend I spent with them was very helpful as we approach this text today. I need y'all to give me some time today with this text. It's not easy. As I was hearing Amari uh, read it, I was like, what in the world? Um, it was disheartening. As we continue in our sermon series, which is I'm asking for a friend, we get into some very, as you can tell, tense questions and subject matters. Let me throw out some disclaimers, of course. The areas of gender and sexuality in the Bible are difficult. Let me go ahead and say it at this also as a Presbyterian. You know how we like to have our stuff systematized and have the right answers and know everything. 
they are not always in every way so clear in the Bible. I want to say that because um, a lot of that has led to fear and conjecture and misunderstanding. In other words, these topics are not easy and will take time and the hard work of the Lord working through our community and others that we continue to grow and sanctify as a church. And so through these sermons, through these uh, sermons that questions that you have sent, I hope that, you know, what I do is more like a trailhead, right? Like we find a place to begin journeying through God's word to grow. I'm by no means an expert or, or, or personally and completely sanctified in these areas myself. I have to admit, I've been complicit in a lot of this stuff, in the mistreatment and overlooking of women. I've been confronted and challenged for my thoughts and actions towards my so-called sisters and even my own wife. And so when I say me too, as a man who is a pastor, I mean me too. I failed here and probably have no idea how much damage and missed opportunity to speak for justice um, that I am guilty of. So I thank my sisters, my wife for helping me and giving me freedom to ask questions and be wrong a lot and be corrected. I also want to give credit where credit is due. Um, this uh, hermeneutic, that, that means the angle, the, the interpretation, the, the application, um, and understanding of this chapter came from Barbara Roberts, she, uh, whom I uh, had an uh, opportunity to meet at a domestic violence uh, conference um, as she talked about domestic violence in the church. And uh, she took this same story, and it really transformed me in my approach. She has a blog, if you want to know, called A Cry for Justice. And um, she has a book um, that I've read through a couple of times called Not Under Bondage. And both the blog and the book focus on the abuse and injustices perpetrated against women. So thank you, Barbara Roberts. Um, my brothers, my sisters, join me right now <laughs> in facing this world and engaging this world and one another with the renewed and renewing dignity that comes only from Christ. So this week we'll look at this question, what I believe is behind this question, right? Um, you have a different question in your bulletin, why, but I have it in my notes as, why is the Bible filled with what appears to be unchecked misogyny? And before we go forward, let me pull out a definition of mis misogyny. Misogyny is a hatred of, contempt for, or prejudice against women or girls. Misogyny is manifest in numerous ways, including social exclusion, exclusion sex discrimination, hostility, androcentrism, patriarchy, male privilege, belittling of women, violence against women, and sexual objectification. Misogyny. And according to that definition, the stories, and I must admit, the stories and history of God's people and their society that we see in this Bible, their dealings, is filled with that kind of stuff. And this passage that we read this morning, as you can tell, is the extreme. And I picked it because it's the extreme. It's the unabridged director's cut, the graphic version of what is going on among God's people and in the broader world at the time. And in some of the very same ways, I am sad to say, today in our world. And yes, our church 
communities. Does God and his world, word, the Bible, condone this behavior? Does he look past it because there are more important issues to deal with than what goes on here? Let me say without qualifying it, no. If you go away with anything else, no. God never intended for these kind of acts of misogyny to be part of what it means to be a woman or for us to turn a blind eye or, or be patronizing or, or, or turn some kind of gaslit right gaze towards it either. In fact, I believe the Bible, through horrific accounts like we have today, is exposing our misogyny as sinful and broken and not expediting or excusing it. I believe the good news of the Bible, the, the, the gospel is seeking to redeem it, not normalize it, right? Not wax over it. That, that the Lord, the Bible is seeking an end to women being devalued, violated, and voiceless. And, and one way the Bible does this is by exposing it for what it is. And there's two things I want you to see here about misogyny being exposed in the Bible. It, first of all, it is the result of a broken and sinful society and world. And secondly, it's the result of broken manhood. All right, so dudes, you're going to get it a little bit today. I'm not excusing. I, I believe there can be women who are misogynistic, right? Complicit as well, right? Remember Color Purple, right? Harpo, what do you need to do? You need to beat her. You told Harpo to beat me, a woman telling another man to beat his wife, right? It, it, there's complicit realities there. But this ain't y'all's day. But you've heard the throwaway comment, sometimes married men say and say to each other when they have something to do they don't want to do. Well, happy wife, happy life, right? Well, well when, it, when it comes to misogyny and mistreatment of women, as the Bible exposes here, it's the inverse. When life is good, then women are usually good, right? But when life is bad, women are treated badly. When the world around them, right, is broken, women are broken in the process. Look at what it says here in verse 1 of chapter 19, and then it repeats itself in the last verse of our passage. Verse 1 says, and I have a Bible with larger letters. Yay. I still need my reading glasses, but I'm, I, the, the gla reading glasses I have, they don't look cool. I'm trying to be like one of those cool passages. You see my double pocket shirt? Like, yeah, I want to be on the, you know, the, the mega pastor draft board one day. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, all the, all the mega church pastors got the double pocket. I'm trying to do my hair real cool, too. Got the shoe. Anyway, that has nothing to do with anything. It's just a lot of stress on this passage, and I'm trying to alleviate it with jokes. But chapter 1, I mean, verse 19, chapter, verse 1, chapter 19 says this. In those days when there was no king in Israel... Right, A certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts, hill country of Ephraim. Now look at the last verse in your reading today, and I'm skipping over a few chapters. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Do you see what the Bible is saying? By bookending this account between these two verses, and by the way, the verse repeats itself throughout the book of Judges. Everyone, no king, everybody doing what they want to do. Let me tell you what that means. 
There was no king, right? Like, it, 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 and so this is the repeat of Judges. It, it is saying the stuff that takes place here is because the people of God were misguided and their society was unjust, out of whack, and severely broken, and not what God intended. Doing what's right in your own eyes means God is not putting a stamp of approval on any of this, y'all, or most of this. In fact, he is saying this is what happens in the kind of world we are left living in when my people are not following my lead, when sin, when broken relationship between us and God and us and each other take effect. And when that happens, the vulnerable pay the greatest price. And in this case, and it's been throughout history, it is the poor, the ethnic minorities or the ethnically different, the children and the women, right? And those with limited abilities who are treated severely and made vulnerable because of the world around them. The Bible says that the woman in our story is a concubine. Now, apparently last week when Robert preached, he brought up concubines. A concubine is a slave wife. Right? Which means she was given up by her fathers. Possibly there's a couple of ways it could happen. She was given up by her father or brothers to someone else to get little or no money back for her. Unlike a bride's price where there was dowries and contracts and a lot of money. Or maybe she even gave up herself just to have a house to be taken care of in. But she was not treated with the same dignity and respect as a freed wife. A freed wife, mind you. Now, I don't want to make it seem like, you know, you hit the lotto if you were the free wife either. Because a free wife may have had to deal with living in a house with secondary wives who might have been there primarily for the sexual purposes of her husband and brought in to give her husband a child because she was barren. This was the way women in that society were treated. Not only that, but it was not safe or just to be a wo woman in this society where, like, like what happened in the village. Now, I'm not going to be to read all this because we don't have enough time. So I'm just going to refer to it. You've heard it, read already. Like, like what happened in that village when there's no policing, right? And, and then the lack of hospitality and sexuality has taken over their society and way of thinking. When, when, and when that kind of stuff happens, when we are in a hookup, free sex, get yours culture, uh-huh, that's not progress, right? It automatically, hear me now, in a hookup, free sex, get yours, we got the app for the hookup thing, Sex, sexual culture re replete, like just saturated with, with pornography and all these things, right? It automatically becomes a place, an environment, a world that is not safe or just for women. It breeds violence and violent thoughts that are free to run unchecked. This woman in the story is in a world where there is no justice or voice for her. The Bible tells us that when, I don't have this in your reading today, I tried, but we ran out of room in the bulletin. And I thought y'all might be standing a long time. 
But this, this story goes from 19 to 21, chapters 21, right? And so what happens is when this atrocity happens after he sends her body parts to different tribes, the, the, you know, the priest, this, this word is, 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 is a new word now for me, gaslights the situation by retelling what he did and what happened masterfully. Because of their legal system, they were able to take the Levite's word for it without any testimony or voice from or for the woman in front of an all-male tribunal. And so he moves on. The story ends. He just kind of disappears. So he moves accountability and justice from him. In fact, when he tells the story, it's almost like, hey, look, this happened. You know, me cutting her up and sending sending her out to y'all. You know what this is? This shows how they mistreated me, y'all. This is a bad city, right? This is a bad town. They didn't give me a safe place to be. And he slips out. And on top of that, right, it's just like this, not only like a legal system that's unjust, but combined with the general lack and value for concubines and women in that society, he, let me tell you what happens in 20 and 21. He actually sets in motion in not being held accountable for her life in chapters 20 and 21, and you got to read it, y'all. It is terrible. Into, he sets in motion a civil war where hundreds of thousands of men's, men, sorry, men are killed, and then a mass kidnapping, rape, and concubinage of possibly 13 and 14-year-old girls, and he gets off for it. They kill so many people that they ain't enough women. So what do they do? Oh, we'll kill some of these, this tribe that didn't do right, and we'll just take their virgins and give them to the tribe so, because we promised we wouldn't give our own women to them. Oh, yeah, oh, man, it's not enough. So this is what we'll do. Let me tell you how they fixed it. This is what we'll do, y'all, since we killed so many people in that city. Um, uh, uh, we have like a feast going on, and when the young virgin girls come out to dance, y'all hide in the bushes. Run out in the night, grab you one, And that's your wife. The end of Judges, the end of the story. A place of violence. Okay, this is not God's or the Bible's doing or saying it's okay. Right? This, this misogyny was all about the brokenness of our world, the society, and community. God through the Bible is, is like the iPhone camera, right? Exposing what happens to women in our community when everybody did what was right in their own minds. And God is saying these folk were crazy. The legal system was crazy. The lack of witness for her was wrong. You know, I get asked a lot because there's a central issue here. When it comes to the way marriage and polygamy was handled in the Bible, the terrible way women were devalued this account, how could and did God approve of a marriage set up for his people that involved the mistreatment and blatant objectification of women? I mean, we see Moses and the law of God for the Israelites setting up laws 
for polygamous situations and freedom for men to make decisions without hearing from a woman. And this Levite, a priest of God, and, and someone who would be a leader of God's people, seemed to be given freedom or felt freedom to do terrible things because of it. And women are violated and left voiceless, it seems, because of the law of Moses. And Moses, that's God's man, right, ain't he? With the Red Sea and the Ten Commandments and a long beard and sandals and all that. Like, he is God's man, right? Well, Jesus, God in the flesh, was asked the ba basically the same question in a different way when the Pharisees, the religious leaders, leaders of the time, asked them if it, were it was lawful to divorce your wife for any cause because women couldn't divorce their husbands. Pointing directly, pointing directly to these male-controlled societies where, where men could marry more than one woman and divorce her without any testimony from her. Sometimes, you know, oh, you, I don't like the way you made the chicken. Bye, right? And on and on. Or, you know what, I can only afford three. You my least favorite. Bye. I'm getting another one. Or oh, this one looked better, right? Like, like that kind of stuff. And Jesus answered them by saying, he gave you these laws because of the hardness of your heart. He allowed you to divorce. But from the beginning, it was not so. Polygamy and treating women like devalued, violated, and voiceless concubines. And the present-day descendants of those things, men feeling free to be players, right? Or through hookup culture, using and treating women for their sexual convenience, and then taking their vulnerability to plug holes in their world was never God's will. Jesus was saying that behavior, polygamy and concubinage, I learned that word, concubinage, right? Was always and always will be a result of sin, of a broken and fallen world itself. Okay, so when you look at the history of ancient Middle Eastern culture, including the Israelites, concubinage and polygamy thrived not because it was good. Hear me, not because it was good, but because things were so bad. This practice was birthed out of war and violence, and poverty, and greed, and lack of hospitality, and danger to the vulnerable. There was so much that made women victims and vulnerable, like the experience in that village in the story, in a world so far from God and God's original good, that polygamy and concubinage came, became a desperate and broken attempt, not by God but by humans to find safety and survival and in many cases express greed in a hard world. Let me illustrate without belittling the effect of misogyny so that you can better understand this. A runny nose, <laughs> a sore throat, diarrhea. Did he say diarrhea in a sermon? Yes. I have in my notes the runs, but I decided that didn't. Oh, I said it. Crud. Or a migraine or body aches may not be the sickness. The doctor's not going to say, you have runny nose disease. 
copay, right? No, he's not going to say that, <laughs> right? Or, or you have diarrhea disease, or you got, oh, you got throw up. All right, bye. Look, I know that, doc. I got enough education to know I got throw up. No, he will say at the root of the symptoms is a virus, a bacteria, or disease. Polygamy and concubinage, concubinage as we see in this Bible, misogyny of all forms, are the runny nose and vomit of our society. And the law of God, as it puts laws in place to deal with this stuff, was simply a tissue, a handkerchief, a throw-up bucket, a, a thermometer, a diaper. Wait, those are too easy. A dirty diaper that you keep wearing around for generations and, and never gets changed and not a handkerchief. God gave them a long sleeve not a, to, to wipe their nose in, right? Not a toilet, but, but an undumped bedside bucket. That's what the law was, so that they could control to some degree and not mess up more, but so that they could see with every blow and every wipe and every sneeze and every bout of nausea that they were sick. And the symptoms, their polygamy and, uh, and against and under the law was showing them they and how they handled their brokenness and how they treated women were getting no better in and of themselves, that they were sick at the core and how they treated their women. And the law revealed that. So God wasn't justifying the treatment of women you see in the Bible. He was letting our brokenness sit on the sleeve and sit in the bucket. The mistreatment, devaluing and violence, violation and voice muffling of our women in any society, the church included says, just like then, we and what we have done is like people without any guidance. Like kids wiping their noses on a sleeve. It doesn't say okay. It says we as a community or society, our laws, our policies, our, our, our churches are sick and lost and separated from God somewhere deep. But not only is God exposing the sickness of our broken world, but our broken manhood. Look at verse, beginning at verse 1 again. In chapter 19, in those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Okay, we can stop right there. You see two things together, right? The Bible is teaching, not promoting teaching that misogyny happens when society has sin and failure, pointing to the part about having no king, right? Everybody doing what they want in their, in their society because this world is wayward and lost, but because individual men and males are also lost. Okay, the Bible lets us know that this man is a Levite, right? He should be at work at the temple. He should be at the church office, right? But the Bible says he is sojourning. He's a drifter. He was off the ranch for some reason. And I, this is an interpretation. I have to admit, I'm not going to lie to you guys, but there is this literary tool here, I believe, as I read it, to say something wasn't right with this dude. 
Everybody was out of place. He was unstable. He was far from or running from not only his calling, but the Lord in some way. Not the first time a man was not where he was supposed to be and meant trouble for a woman. Y'all remember some of you who know the Bible, David and Bathsheba? The, Bible, the verse starts off, when kings should be off the war, David was chilling on his roof and he saw Bathsheba, right? A man out of place. Look at verse 2 with me. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there for some four months. Now, again, you don't have this in your English Bibles, right? But an older translation of the verse reads this, and it's okay to translate this way, and it makes sense to me. She not only was, it doesn't mean she was adulterous to him only, right? Because in your mind, she was just cheating, right? She was, yeah, okay. It means she despised him. She did not respect him and went away from him to her father's home. Now, this is why I kind of believe this translation. In the days and times, the one place an adulteress, a woman who cheated on her husband, would not go is back home. It could have meant a whole lot of trouble for her and her father because the penalty for adultery was capital punishment. So if he was a holy man, the dad would bring the daughter out. Here you go. Honey, you can't come back here. You've been bought. You don't belong to me anymore. She stays there four months, y'all. Now, what's sad is I'm reading commentaries that were written a while ago, and they say the fact that she felt free to go back home and leave her husband and the fact that her dad brought her back in was a sign that things were evil. She should have just stayed with that man. That's what, and they would say that's what judges meant by there was no king in the, in the world because women just running around, being adulterous, going back home, and that the priest was nice. Okay, I, and the, I, I don't agree with that interpretation, okay, because of what ends up happening. Like, eventually, it comes out, right, to some degree. Um, yes, so, yes, her father's actions were not lawful since she was a property of the Levite, but all indications as we see in what happens there later are, are that, let me say it, dude was most likely mistreating her. Not doing what he should be doing. You know, even a concubine had rights. You had to feed her, had to house her, had to do, do right, right? You, you, she was a secondary wife. She wasn't just a slave, right? It, 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 but possibly he was abusing her, and she went back home as if the Levite didn't keep up his end of the deal in some way, and he broke the contract, so she went back home, right? So she went back to her dad, and for that reason, I believe her dad welcomed her back in and even tried, as we read earlier, to extend the time and wine and dine the Levite, maybe they would have stayed there. It's almost like he wanted the Levite not to take his daughter out of his sight. But let the gaslighting and schmoozing begin, right? Verse 3 says he was kind. Spoke kind. And then he brought his servant and two donkeys. You know what that means? He was showing off his wealth, y'all. As in, I'll take good care of her. Whatever she told you, look, I, I'm the man. 
right? Th this is why he brings attention to the two donkeys and the servants. And, and, and she's safe. Maybe he was letting her starve and he was proving he had what it takes. And the Bible says in verse 3 that she brought him into her father's home. And there is courting by her father each day to not go. Stay another night. I have food and drink. One of two things. The father doesn't trust a man to take his daughter. Or worse, he is trying to court the man. Now that he sees he has a servant and two donkeys to finally possibly pay a bride's price for the value of his daughter. But the sure sign that something could not be right for the woman, I think God does this, is the absence of the woman's voice in all of this. She's a pawn. She's a piece, a bargaining tool. We don't truly know how she feels, but we do know that the priest is, was gaslighting. He was presenting something about himself that was not true to regain the father in a woman's trust so that he could take her away again to loveless, self-preserving relationship. He was redefining why she left. It must be her since he is so rich. It must be her since he's so much fun and whining and dining. And then the men get to decide that among themselves. There is no voice. She's just a concubine. And that is what the priest is looking for. Do you get it? He is looking for an easy, vulnerable woman for his brokenness. For his weakness to exercise his misogyny and to put his sins all over. And with the world, poverty, and sick community in which they live, it was the perfect place for him to not be held accountable. And for him with other men to recast reality. And reality created and maintained by messed up males in this case. You know why this woman is devalued, violated, and voiceless? I, I'm going to flip it. Not because as a concubine, she was poor and shameful. But the men in her life were poor and shameful. Do you get it? You go looking for a concubine because you don't have no money. Right? You go looking for something easy. That's the point. And so we created society where women are easy pickings, easy taken, because we don't have what it takes to actually have a woman. Right? The priest was cheap. Possibly not had the stuff to get a true bride, or he was shamed and desperate. If he was married, we don't know. Like a lot of men, because his wife was barren. Or maybe he was the one who was impotent, Right? But, but let me go deeper. Whether it's the father, the priest, the old man in the village, the sex-hungry dudes outside the door, the priest trying to get going before he's possibly found out because maybe the dad's trying to press him until he pops and admits he's not been right to his daughter or, or so he leaves before that happens. The priest taking her into the city and a place. Now, I don't have time to get into all of this, it, but I've learned a lot. I, when I hung out with uh, Danielle and uh, Brittany and, and they talked about being single women in the world, look, y'all, I didn't know, you know, if a dude asked for your number, that could be trouble for you if you don't give it in this world. If you had a stop sign and dude's like, hey, girl, that could be danger. What if he follows you? Right? The priest takes his wife to an unsafe place safe for him or made safe for him because they really want him, right? They really want to rape him. 
but not safe for her for sure. What kind of raggedy man? Right? Okay, so the priest taking her into the city, or her being cut up in disgrace. Get this, when he cuts her up, an image, he cuts her image up as exhibit A for the community of his rights being violated. Or the fact that men, without the testimony and voice of any woman standing up or speaking for the dead woman, it all says the same thing. Women are devalued, violated, made voiceless to take care of the inner and outer brokenness and weaknesses and mistakes of the men in their lives. And when men are weak and mistaken, women are vulnerable and the stronger a man's ability to manipulate women. Right? Let's go deeper. When a man is empty here, in the heart and soul, when he's shamed here, challenged here, poor here, too poor to actually offer a woman out of his soul any sense of worth, like the concubine had to settle for from a broke-behind priest. When a, when a woman is wayward and has no sense of worth, and when a man, I'm sorry, is wayward and has no sense of worth and call here in his heart, in his soul, when he is far from God in his soul, in some way, God is telling us, the Bible is saying, women will inevitably be get, get devalued, violated, and possibly sexually objectified, and Silence and made to feel like they are not being faithful to help their men and love their men. Like some sort of sick codependence. That is not the same thing as biblical oneness or friendship. But ask and forces a woman to not feel like a real woman or person unless she saves him or secures his manhood. Or becomes an object to prop up his brokenness to be the good woman behind every good man. Stop saying that. Like he's the point of the relationship and world, you know, like he's the point of the relationship. Not biblical. Eve was never behind Adam. I see this so clearly in evangelical circles. Y'all ready? Where the ideals of submission and headship and servant leadership have not fallen on the shoulders of the man, have not fallen on the shoulders of the father or the brother or the husband, but instead so often it is all about shaping women and making sure they are shaped to be the submissive, right? Cut up and put back together, composite of poor manhood crafted false womanhood and beauty and sexuality. Even what the shape and size and weight need to look like. You know where this happens? Not in the world. Right up in the church. Man, some of these campus ministries I've been a part of. Some of y'all been a part of. You know what it's like? It's like this Women's Evangelical Finishing School. Well, women come in and they're holding their Bibles like everybody else. This is just an illustration. Right? But by the end of four years, they're holding it like this. I've seen it. Right? Somehow, like, I've seen it. 
They come in with opinions, right? Hey, I'm here to study this. And then by the end of the three years, they're convinced the best degree is the MRS degree. Right? It's almost like, and this is hard for me, y'all. I'm a complementarian, right? So, so, so I do believe that we are created equal, right? In the image and likeness of God, but God has called us to reflect that image in different ways. I believe that. But I must say, in my experiences, in some of the conversations I've had, y'all, where it's declared that if a woman's too opinionated, fat, or smart, yeah, straight up. Conversations with guys in seminary. Oh, we don't want to mess with her. She, she got the fat disease. What? Really? No, wait, we don't, don't mess with her. She, she talked too much. These are the priests, y'all. This is what's happening. It makes me wonder whether the version, the version of complementarianism I've gotten, and I continue to believe in it, is not some type of cultural mess up. Like the way women are treated and manipulated and changed, something's wrong. When in one sentence you could talk about biblical submission and size and weight, something wrong. And now y'all running around some women trying to be, oh, I just had a baby, but I dropped all the weight. What is that? How is that godly? What kind of community is that? That anything above 130 is off. What are we doing, y'all? I'm way off. I'm way off right now. Why do we do this? We want to shape and make a woman to be more of what we feel we can handle. Or make us feel better or because we are poor in here, because we are ashamed in here, because we don't think highly of ourselves in here, because we are empty and sex crazed in here, because we got some serious problems there, because biblical manhood, godly manhood is too difficult for us to deal with. And we would rather, like we do in this story, devalue, violate, and silence our sisters and mothers for our personal good or wanting. Oh, I love Jerry Maguire. But now Christians have embraced this, you complete me. Oh, that's not biblical. Because let me tell you what it means or what it begins to mean. I'm like this pie and I got some missing pieces. So you woman, your job is to be cut up so you can fit in to my broken place. Right? The Levite used this woman to fill in the broken pieces, y'all. To, to use as an object lesson, right? Like, you know what it takes to have a marriage? Two whole people, not two half people, right? Our wholeness doesn't come when we divide each other up into what we think will work to fill that place of brokenness, right? 
It happens when two people completed in Christ Jesus come together in sacrificial freedom. If you aren't man enough to love, keep going, brothers. Leave your sisters alone until you're ready. And if you're married, you can't leave. Right? I'm not saying that. Oh, I, could, I wasn't man enough. Nah, bro, we coming to find you. <laughs> right? So if you're not man enough and you think you need to leave, it might two, take two or three men to get you back there, right? But if you ain't married and you got problems, I have to admit, as I scoured through the scriptures, you know, it, it's just very difficult. This is not a sermon about biblical manhood or womanhood per se, but God is decrying. But what is God decrying? He is confronting our sinful misogyny as men in this passage and calling us to biblical manhood. When they ask, when the world demands of us, like those men did at the door, we go in faith and not sacrifice the vulnerable in our community. Let me throw this nugget out. The courage of the concubine is an example for all women. She went to a place, she ran to a place where she could be valued again and protected again, and going back to the door of the Levite, going back to her dad, and then going back to the door of the Levite after being raped basically to death, she was not being a floozy returning to her abusive boyfriend. It's easy to read the text. See, you know, she's the problem because she returned. No, she was putting the evidence of her abuse right on his doorstep. That's what this is saying. It's funny how the text says, he walked out to go his way, and behold, when the Bible says behold, that means surprise. <laughs> right? It was like, hey, I did wrong. You know, I'm safe. My, you know, my wife, concubine, she ain't worth nothing. She's probably dead. They got her. I'm out. No. Behold. <laughs> right? <clears throat> this is, yo, man, you abuse me. This man is my husband, and he did wrong by me. It's almost like he's wanting to get out of there and he's afraid, stumbles in the night. Let me say this, and I hate it. Okay, personally, just, just as a sinful person, I don't want to say this because it's happened to me. Okay? Because I'm a sinful man. It's happened to me. And it's happened to a lot of you fellas, and maybe it should happen more. But let me say this about the concubine being at the door. Women, it's okay to jam up a man or a sister. Just say, hold up. You can't do this or move on. I don't care who you are. You will not mistreat me and get away from it. I've experienced this. When a woman says, hold up, <laughs> you did this, you said this. It's so scary. You did this or said this, and it challenged and changed me and made me man up, and it was shameful and hard. I believe this is what she does. He can't keep going. It didn't work out then, but we see justice and direction for her courage now for us. Thank you. Unnamed sister in Judges 19. 
But not only jammer, brother, but in times you feel devalued or violated or voiceless, the Bible is saying go to places and people of protection. Who gives you dignity? Who instills your sense of worth? We talked about it primarily and ultimately today. Yes, it's in community. It's with other brothers and sisters around you. But what did this verse, I mean, the song we sang today say? He's a good, good father. I'm going to say something that's hard because I'm not a woman. (laughs) I don't know what's happened to you. I don't know how some of you have been treated. I don't know what it's like to go out there and feel vulnerable at every turn. If this guy comes up to you, people looking at you behind and this and that, looking you up and down, I don't know what that's like. I don't know what it feels like to be voiceless and saying, if I say anything, it's just going to make me look like this or that. Or I slept with this guy or I went into this guy's apartment and he mistreated me. Everyone's going to think I'm just a whore, right? Everybody's going to think I'm the one to blame. Anything that you could have done or has been done to you will not stop the Father from receiving you back. You are always welcome in his home, in God's home, as a woman of great price that deserves value and respect and renewed dignity. This house Christ Central, other churches that stand for Christ, this is the Father's house. And every woman who's been treated like a concubine or whatever is welcomed here for restoration of your dignity and worth, for protection. And we will jam up a brother with you, okay? Let me finish with this, y'all. And men... repent. I know y'all afraid. Oh my gosh, when I would hear sermons like this, and even as I preach it, I'm thinking, man, I just gave her one over me. (laughs) Right? You start to feel that weakness. Man, I've done it for 20 years, almost 21 years. Kind of, you know, I'm empty, so Kelly's got to kind of fill those spots because of my weakness as a man. I don't want to give that back. I don't want to admit I'm empty here. (laughs) Repentance is admitting you're not man enough outside of Christ. You're empty, so you're sex crazed. You got all kind of pornographic issues, right? You've been abused. And so now it's kind of trickled down in how you treat Women in our society, how you treat your wife, how you treat your girlfriend, how you treat your sisters. Jesus is not coming to shame you men. You know, when that man came came to the door asking for the priest, Jesus is not coming to, to, to turn you over to a place of greater abuse. I promise you, if you answer the door that's calling on your life as an empty person, at that door will be God's grace for you. But I want to urge you, stop cutting women apart, tearing them apart for your good, for your anger, for your desire, for your trying to be right. Stop sacrificing them 
and let Christ be the ultimate sacrifice for your problems. See, the only way you'll be a whole man. And in that, we end so much misogyny, so much concubinage, so much of that mess, and we become a safe place as a community and people for our sisters. That was part one. Because <laughs> I didn't do enough on how this thing's redeemed. So we'll talk about it next week. And uh, I'll reveal some complementarian leanings more next week because I had questions about that too. And how I think the Bible in even calling us to be different brings some redemption to that. Okay? All right, let me pray. Lord, thank you for this time in your word. Help us to be whole brothers to our sisters. Husbands, fathers, uncles. Help us not to take advantage of them because of our brokenness. But Lord, please take us in our brokenness. And I pray for our sisters here today who've experienced so much of it and how people have used the Bible to justify it. Please make this a safe place where we can come to understanding, where we kind of have a tribunal, where we sit around and talk and, and work through these issues. Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.